0: Paramedic Forty Three, District One, Engine Fifty One, response: cardiac
1: arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another episode of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. My name is Dr. Casey Patrick, and joining me today is Greg Ferris. And Greg is the Deputy Medical Director for Indianapolis EMS. He's on staff at Riley Hospital for Children, where he works as a pediatric. EM physician. We're lucky to have Greg with us today and Greg's going to talk with us about a topic that we see very often common problem transports uh, for our service here at MCHD and I'm sure across the country and that's pediatric concussions. This is something that's been in the news for the past five to ten years with, with CTE and and NFL players, and we see a head injury death in, in football. Seems like every fall. So let's let's roll right in and and get started with really the obvious initial problem when it comes to concussions. Uh, you know, for me as emergency provider, I think there's a lot of gray area. You know, how do we how, currently? How do we define a concussion, Greg?
0: Thanks for having me on. You know, I, defining concussion is not easy. Like you said, there's a lot of gray. And I think that probably the simplest is just having immediate or, and transient symptoms that occur after a traumatic brain injury. And, and um, that can be a direct blow to the head. It can be a blow to the face or to the neck, or um, it doesn't even have to be a, a direct blow. It can be an indirect blow, or it can be a deceleration injury. So there's lots of different ways to get them, but it's the most important thing is that you have some sort of immediate symptoms that occur after the injury and the key to concussion is that if somebody did a head CT or just a normal MRI that there'd be no changes on that imaging that it's more of a functional problem and not a structural problem.
1: So from the pre-hospital setting, are there ways that you know you teach providers to uh, classify rank? I know there's there's a lot out there and I don't want to get too deep in the weeds, but, you know, I guess to, to make it an easier question to answer a little more straightforward, what are some of the red flags when we have uh, pediatric head injury, not just concussion, but, you know, what are some of the things when we encounter these patients that should maybe perk our antenna up that there could be something uh, more going on, or if it is a concussion, it's, it's more, more severe in nature. So I think that, uh,
0: to go to your first point, to answer your first question is really how do we, um. How do we kind of classify concussion or head injury? And I think the very first thing you have to do is decide whether this is um, what we consider mild uh, head injury or moderate or severe. I mean, that's your first that's your first branch point, right? Because concussion is always going to fall fall into that mild head injury. And so speaking in terms of GCS, which is how most people kind of look at head injury, your mild is gonna be the GCS 14 and 15. And then everything else, once you are below that, then we're not talking concussion anymore. That's a whole different whole different topic. So <clears throat> we're really just looking at those, that GCS 14, 15 kid or after some sort of head injury. In terms of red flags, I think that any kind of overt symptoms that occur immediately, so, things like loss of consciousness or a change in the tone of the patient of the of the kid whether it be kind of tonic tone kind of stiffening or a post a post uh, injury seizure any of those those are automatic even those are automatic kind of on field red flags i would say and that that person needs to be pulled if, whether they are you know playing sports or or whatever that they should be pulled from whatever they're involved in and be evaluated further. Um, other things are repetitive vomiting, um, kind of uh, that kid who is asking the same question over and over again, or they're slow to respond. Um, those would all be more concerning signs or symptoms. Um, so those are, those are probably the big red flags. I always think, uh, even though it's not a there's a, there was a big study that came out that in the pediatric emergency department, we referenced quite a bit. And, and really it's a tool that is used to determine who needs head CT and or not. So it doesn't particularly pertain to concussion, but I think I tend to use it as how severe is this person. And uh, that study came out several years ago is by um, Dr. Cooperman and you know, essentially, it kind of defines red flags for people with mild head injury that need imaging, and I, I think if any if a kid has any of those symptoms, um, then they need to be evaluated further. And so that that, that those are exactly what we talked uh, what I talked about already. Kind of those the somnolence and um, repetitive vomiting, prolonged loss of consciousness, and honestly, if their GCS is anything but but a 15, they probably need to be uh, evaluated evaluated
1: further. Excellent. So, you know, as I mentioned in the intro, concussions garnered tons of media attention over the past several years. Um, you know, we see it on the on the nightly news almost monthly. Uh, you know, somebody in a in a big game somewhere, Super Bowl, NFL playoffs, college playoffs. There's there's questions regarding the concussion protocol and did they follow it appropriately when the you know the patient's head hits the field and they look like they're drunk on a on a uh, on a boat, you know, for the next 30 seconds or so, and then they're in two plays later, you know, so there's obvious, you know, media coverage. It's something that's discussed in the lay press. So this is something that when we're, you know, on the field at at games, you know, providing transport services, um, there's, you know, the coaches, the parents, the trainers, folks have, you know, have knowledge of, of concussion now more so than when I was involved in athletic 20, 25 years ago, this this wasn't an issue. You know, if you, if you got knocked silly, the, the approach was how quick can you get back in the game to be tough? You know, and I think we know that's the wrong approach now. And again, this is more, I guess I'm asking you more is when you're seeing folks in the department as an emergency provider as opposed to educating, but I think some of these these scripts and some of the ways that we talk to patients can definitely flow through to the pre-hospital setting, but what are some of the recurring messages and scripts when you talk to parents of pediatric concussion patients that you use and kind of how you approach your workup and, you know, the description and, you know, how you break it down for lay people? So
0: I think that, honestly, the first thing that I always tell families and i lead with it and then i close with it is i give them a reference that they can go to at home and the one that i always give i think is really really good is the cdc's website so cdc.gov and then the um and if if in the search bar you search heads up there is more information than than you could possibly want and there's information for the patient the parent coaches um there's information about return to play about return to school and i think that it that that's the first thing i tell people is because you know and and i think that is a good thing that our pre-hospital providers could do also because it it doesn't you know in that moment you're going to be telling them stuff and they're maybe going to get 25 50 percent of what you're saying but if they have a resource that they can go back to and read up on later i think that that's really powerful and that cdc website is the best that i've found um it's it's really really good so that so that's that's the first thing i do is i try to give them a, a resource and then um especially if it's for anybody right even if they're They were at school and they fell off a slide and they they hit their head and they have symptoms. But I kind of go through the same thing. We talk, I talk about what a concussion is, that whether we've done a CT or not, you know, most of these kids don't even require any imaging. I talk about that there's there's no structural damage to the brain, but it takes a long time for it to heal. And um, in kids, we know that kids are more likely to have to get concussion. For, for a particular head injury and more likely to have prolonged symptoms uh, than, ad, than adult counterpart. So, so, I talk about that and the fact that, you know, you have to go slow. The recovery takes a long time, you know, sometimes weeks, sometimes months, usually within four weeks. But, um, you know, there are kids that have symptoms for months to years. Uh, just from one minor head injury, and we talk, and then I always talk about what the symptoms are. So it's not always things that are that you would expect. Most kids have a headache, um, but then balance problems, um, emotional lab, uh, lability. So you know they'll cry more frequently, they have more emotional outbursts, um, they have hard time, a uh, hard time concentrating. They run into things more frequently, their balance is off. So talk about the wide variety of symptoms that they can have. And and then especially for athletes, right, the thing they want to know is when can I go back in? And I always tell them, like, if you're seeing me and I'm telling you you have a concussion, it's going to be at a bare minimum one week before you can return to uh, a game. And the reason is is because I always go through a return to play protocol with them and essentially, it's very slow. It's a every twenty-four hour thing, and if you have any symptoms, you're knocked back a day. And so, if you if you do every if every day you're improving, the minimum it's going to be is a week, and that is to to a game. And so, I just go through it and I tell them what the expectation is and what I expect them and how long I expect them to be ill and not feeling well for some time.
1: So, I think it's a good spot to transition to to one of the questions I had a little further down the list, but I think this, it works here. You you talked a little bit about we all think about headache and, you know, ringing in the ears. But I think there's uh, some other issues there that you hit on that that may not be as as well known or at least thought of up front. And that's, you know, balance issues, uh, concentration issues, attention issues, which, again, if you've got balance issues and you go back into play, you know, that's a recipe for disaster. But talk a little bit about second hit syndrome and kind of what that is and why that's probably the, you know, for us emergency providers, the biggest concern when we, when we think about letting kids go back into play, kind of what that is and why and how that's important.
0: So... Second second hit, hit syndrome or second impact syndrome or um, it's it is the most devastating thing and that's the thing we worry about. It's very rare, but you know I think that most of us have have a link to somebody that has had it in some way or one way or then or another. And essentially, what it is is if you sustain a second minor head injury while you're still recovering from your first concussion, that you can have this. And no one really knows exactly why it happens, but essentially the mortality or death rate is somewhere most will say 50 to 100 percent you know kind of everything is just uh case reports that i've that i've seen there's not a lot of big studies to look at this because it's it's pretty rare but you get this this dysregulation in the brain and then sudden swelling and uh a lot of those kids die. And so that's what we worry about the most is sending someone back in too soon. And if they were to sustain a second concussion and having a second impact syndrome, you know, it seems inconvenient to hold, the, hold kids out when they're the next football star, but really it's so important. And, you know, even kind of down the list from that second hit syndrome, not really down the list, but we're learning more and more like you had referenced earlier about CTE and other things um, that can happen later on in life from multiple small,
1: uh, head injuries, minor head injuries. So we, we talked about, you know, you mentioned attention, balance, emotional ability, um, and minimum one week out. What are some of the things, you know, in your, in your protocol, if you're, if you're managing these kids, what are some of the instructions, specific instructions you give them, things that you want them to do, things that you want them to avoid?
0: So it used to be, so one thing I, this is another thing I address with every single family is, you know, there's an old, I always tell parents that it's an old wives tale that you have to wake up people after a concussion, you wake them up, you wake them up overnight, because there's a fear that they're going to die in their sleep. So I always first I I address that for that's one of the big things I address, because I feel like that's something that is very well that most parents at least are worried about. And I always tell them, let, like sleep, it helps. Sleep helps. Let them sleep through the night. You sh- they should sleep as, you know, the sleep is good for their brain. It helps kind of healing. So I always address that first. And then I tell them, you know, in terms of, you know, the other big thing is school. Can they go back to school? Kind of the old thought was that, no, they needed to have complete rest. No stimulation at all. no No television, no video game, no learning, no cognitive load at all. Um, and there was a study, I think it was out of Milwaukee, it was a few years back, where they kind of looked at that, kind of the complete cognitive neurorest versus people that were doing their normal daily things, but not not involved in exercise or high cognitive loads. And the group that was doing their normal stuff without without doing too much did better than the ones that were like on complete neurologic arrest. And so now we're kind of getting away from that, from like the turn everything off, don't let them do anything, have them lay in the dark. Um, that's probably not the best way to do it. So I tell them to kind of go about their normal daily life if they're in school and you know they're testing or something and that's a high cognitive load and they start to have symptoms then they probably need to back off a little bit and most schools should have some sort of return to school policy in terms of head injury so I, that's a, a we, i talked to them about how much is too much and when should they back off and essentially it's when if you're doing something and you start to have symptoms that get worse like your headache gets worse or you have more balance issues or whatever it may be whatever your symptoms are because they're all so there's so many different symptoms if they get worse then you probably should back off from whatever that activity is, and then try again 24 hours later and see what happens.
1: Yeah, and just for, for the listeners out there, um, we'll gather uh, Greg's references um, from throughout this talk and, and post them on the show notes for you guys so you can take a look. And just I think my spiel is probably a little more of a, a simpleton approach, but I, I liken concussion again. This is not not a, not a, a one to, one to one comparison, but I liken them to ankle sprains. And when we send ankle sprains home, we don't have you non weight bearing with with a splint on right but we also don't have you running sprints and so it it needs to heal you need to baby it but you also need to do range of motion exercises and progressively increase your weight bearing load um, with an ankle sprain i feel like concussions kind of the same way in that we don't want to go sit in a dark room continuously but we also probably don't want to go watch infinity war on on 3d you know or sit in front of your screen for three straight hours and and binge Netflix, or it's testing time here in Texas. Star test here, and all the kids, all you guys out there with kids, know n- know about the the dreaded star test. And I, I think that you know if your school doesn't have a protocol for that, that would be a situation like you talked about, increased cognitive loading. Definitely, that where, where a kid would need a frequent break, and and would need uh, probably a little extra attention. So when we transport these patients, Greg, is there any specific guidelines, precautions, treatments that you give your pre-hospital folks via education or protocol? I know that there's not a whole lot out there, but do you see anything, anything you guys do now or anything that you see coming in the future?
0: I don't think so. I think that the, the, the big thing is to, you know, if they have any of those red flag symptoms, um, they probably, they need to be seen. So I think that's a big thing. So if you're transporting them, you know, or if you're called to their, to, to that field, You know, um, being aware of those red flags and and know that those kids definitely need to be evaluated in an emergency department. So I think that's one thing. The other thing. To always think about is c-spine injury you know c-spine injury in kids is very rare but the injury that is most associated with c-spine injury is head injury and so it's just something that you need to evaluate and you need to take care of if if they have any concerning signs or symptoms of c-spine injury so i think that's probably the biggest thing and that's the biggest thing what you know i talk to medics about is making sure that yeah maybe they just got hit in the head but make sure you're evaluating that c-spine as well and then uh, just symptomatic treatment, you know, if they're, if they're throwing up a lot and you, and you have a protocol for Zofran or an antiemetic of some sort, then it's reasonable to try to go ahead and give that to them see if you can get them feeling better. That's all, that's all we can do is symptomatic support, really.
1: I think it's a good, good C-spine reminder. It wouldn't be a head injury talk without a C-spine reminder, so make sure we're using our, our clinical decision rules properly, whatever that may be out there for your, for your, your specific protocol. Um, and also, I think it's a good reminder too for parent education. If it, I think I could foresee a situation where an event like this happened at home, and you had a, a you know a parent potential you know, refusal of transport situation, um, where if you saw one of these red flag symptoms, that would definitely give you ammunition to speak from the literature eloquently to the parents about hey, you know your your child puked or your child was repetitive or, you know, whatever it may be. I don't think a lot of parents, I mean, most of them are going to be like, get them out of here. But I think if there was ever a situation where someone like that, you know, wanted to refuse that, that would definitely be one where even no matter how normal they looked to you, they, they for sure need to be evaluated. So I think that's something for folks to remember as well. So that about wraps it up for today. Again, thank, thank you, Greg, for joining us. Um, I think this is one, again, hot topic, something that, that we all hear about, um, Hopefully this gives us a little better framework with which to talk to patients and talk to our hospital providers uh, with. And uh, if you guys have questions or comments, as always, send them our way and we'll talk to you all soon. Thank you very much.